Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. I'd like you to take a look at this small bottle of sand and guess how many how many grains of sand are in it. Maybe you can write your number down and we'll come back to this later in the message today. As we continue in the 2021 40 days of prayer from heaven to earth, our text today is Psalm 139. Uh, Each week we're covering an attribute of God and we're asking how does that attribute shape our prayers? And in Psalm 139, there are a couple of verses that relate, of course, to my bottle of sand there. Uh, verse 17 and 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, God, how vast is the sum of them were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Today, we're going to look at what seeing God's majesty can do for our prayer lives. Now, the Psalms, of course, are words to or about God. This Psalm is a prayer directly to God. And as we look at it today, it's going to answer, this Psalm is going to answer a couple of questions for us. Uh, What is God like and how should we respond? You can divide the Psalm into several sections, but into two larger sections. The first 18 verses answer that first question about what God is like by describing him in a majestic way. It reveals important truths about him, like his omniscience. He knows everything. His omnipresence. He is everywhere, and he is creator. He formed us. Then, verses 19 to 24 answer a second question. In light of this, in light of this great majestic God, how, how should we respond? And it hones in on the evil that is around us and within us. So let's dive in and let's go right to that first question. What is God like? First of all, he is omniscient. He knows us completely. We find that in the first six verses. David writes this psalm, prays this psalm to God, and he And he says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Omniscience means all-knowing. Wayne Grudem uh, defines it this way. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. He is fully aware of everything at all times. If God wanted to tell us how many grains of sand were in this bottle and in the entire universe, for that matter, he wouldn't have to calculate it. He wouldn't have to remember it because it hadn't been on his mind. He would know it at at once. And David, the psalmist says, you have searched me, Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, this word search was used in investigating legal cases, like in Proverbs eighteen seventeen, 
in seeking information about mining prospects in Job 28.3. It also referred to probing someone's character or feelings, like when Jonathan, quote, sounded out his father's feelings towards David. This is what God does. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. So the psalmist says, you have searched me and you know me. Now, like the English word know, the Hebrew word here know, can mean a a range of things from, from knowing someone as an acquaintance to knowing them intimately. The context of Psalm 139 clearly is speaking about intimate knowledge. God, you know me. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, what we have here in this passage is a literary device called merism, where contrasting pairs are used to express totality. The comprehensiveness of God's knowledge of us is presented in these these pairs that are found here. So as I put them up on the screen in in different uh, highlighted colors, notice, notice the contrast, notice the pairs, when I sit, when I rise, my going out, my lying down, you hem me in behind and before, and then in thinking about all of that, just that God's knowledge of us is so intimate and so comprehensive, he just, he just concludes in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, do you think David felt encouraged or threatened by this truth? Now think about if we are living to please ourselves and we're not interested in God, then this overwhelming knowledge of God may seem threatening. But when we turn from our sin, when we seek to please God, if we're living that kind of lifestyle, this knowledge comforts us uh, amazingly. Now, David, of course, had spiritual ups and downs in his life, but I think, I, I think it's best to understand it at this point, that this is a positive. I think this is drawing him closer to God as he, as he stood in awe of God. Well, not only is God omniscient, but God is also omnipresent. He surrounds us constantly. Now, again, let's Let's look to Wayne Grudem for a definition of omnipresence. God does not have size or spatial limitations and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go or where can I flee from your presence? Of course, the answer to those questions is is nowhere. Verse 8, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. See again the merism. See this literary figure again, the heavens and the depths. Verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. 
The wings of the dawn is probably a reference to traveling as far east as possible. And settling on the far side of the sea is probably a reference to traveling as far west as possible. It doesn't matter how far I go, east or west, you're going to guide me there. This sounds like the prophet Jonah. When God had told him to go to Nineveh to preach, he boarded a ship heading in the opposite direction as as far as possible, but not away from God. You ever play hide and seek as a kid? That that was a great fun game. Uh, it, it's a lot more fun, heart throbbing, and and dangerous when it's when it's dark outside, or when you can go into a dark closet, for instance. But notice verse. 11 and 12, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So again, I ask, is this troubling or comforting? It may depend on if if you want God looking at you and being with you. Are you prayerful? God surrounds you. Are you fearful? God surrounds you. Are you hopeful? God surrounds you. Are you nervous? God surrounds you. Are you sinful? God surrounds you. Now, think about how amazing these truths are. God is omniscient. He knows us completely. God is omnipresent. He surrounds us constantly. Now, here's here's another thing in verses 13 to 18. God is creator. He formed us purposefully. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, when we discuss creation, we often marvel at the physical universe, the size, the intricacy, the design. But scripture goes far beyond that when referring to creation by stressing that God is interested in and involved in his creation, especially people. Job 12.10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Acts 17.25 and 28, in him we live and move and have our being. As Michael Wilcock put it, God was creating not just life in general, but a life. Notice where it starts. In my mother's womb, verse 15, 13. And 15 we'll say, which we'll see in a minute, in the secret place. It starts in the mother's womb. And so what does David do? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God places tremendous value on us, even as embryos, and he sovereignly plans our days. Of course, he gives us freedom, but the emphasis here is on his sovereign goodness, oversight, 
and planning. And what a contrast this is uh, with the empty, unfulfilling, and erroneous worldview prevalent in our society that holds that an unformed fetus is just a blob of tissue, uh, tissues, a collection of cells formed by a random process. King David views it as something much, much differently. The work of God, all the way from conception through all our days. You know, it may be that the human body is the most complex organism in the world. Engineers design strong but lightweight beams by putting the strong material towards the outside edges of a cross-section and filling the inside with lighter, weaker material. Our bones, for instance, have strong material on the outside, and the inside is used as a factory for blood cells of various kinds. Sophisticated cameras are able to let in more or less light as needed and and can focus automatically over a, a wide field which mimics what God designed our eyes to do. The human brain can learn and reason and control so many automatic functions of the body like heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, and maintaining balance to walk, run, stand, sit, all while concentrating on something else. From the single fertilized cell of a newly conceived human life within the womb of his or her mother, Uh, develop all the different kinds of tissues, organs, and systems, and they all work together at just the right time. For example, the hole in the septum between the two ventricles in the heart of the newborn infant closes up at just the right time to allow for the oxygenation of the blood in the lungs not used in the womb. Truly, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and the psalmist shouts, as it were, in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So I started with that picture up there, and I had this bottle of sand and asked you how many grains of sand are just in this little tiny bottle. This is what one, two, I don't know, two or three inches tall. This little small bottle of sand. Um, I I know how many are in here. I've counted every single one of them. Well, not, not exactly. I know that a teaspoon of sand, uh, typically has 32,000 grains in it. This particular bottle has 13 teaspoons, which means that in this bottle, there are probably 416,000 grains of sand just right here. Remember, the psalmist is saying, oh, all these amazing thoughts about God. They're more than the the sand in the whole world, right? (laughs) They would outnumber the grains of not just the sand here. I mean, 416,000, that's a lot. But. Let's start multiplying. This is one bottle of sand. What about all the sand and all the horseshoe pits in the in the United States? Or all the sand in the sandboxes? Oh, all right, let's expand it. Think about all the beaches in the world. And then add the deserts. 
Now, you, you start putting all that sand together. Uh, science writer uh, David Blattner in his book Spectrum says a group of researchers uh, at the University of Hawaii tried to calculate the number of grains of sand on the earth. They said if you assume a grain of sand has an average size and you calculate how many are in a teaspoon, and then you multiply that by all the beaches and deserts in the world, the earth has roughly, and of course we're speaking very roughly here, 7.5 times 10 to the 18th grains of sand. That's 7 quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains. I don't even know how much that is. That's a lot. And David says, if I were to count your thoughts towards me, God, they, it would be more than the grains of sand. So after David sees and worships God's greatness here, talks about him, lifts him up as omniscient and omnipresent creator and designing us so intricately and intimately, he responds in other ways as well. And that leads us to the last half of the psalm, the last few verses, actually. And we ask that question, how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this? And the first thing to do is to ask him to deal with evil in the world. Now, let me warn you, we've been, been reading majestic words, and now, now the tone changes rather abruptly. He said, if, you on, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Wow, we went from the sublime to these words. And when I first read it, honestly, I, I thought, uh, I wish that wasn't there. <laughs> now, as we reflect on it, it's not as out of place as it might seem at first, since God made the psalmist in his own image. That includes making him as a moral being. And as a moral being, he will either join with God or with God's enemies. He will choose right or wrong. For him, it was a choice. To whom am I going to be committed? Am I going to be committed to God or those who hate God? God has been amazingly good to him. And he asked God to remove the cause of evil in his world. And here's the truth. We cannot be morally right without hating evil. So take sexual harassment or prejudice or any number of things. What if, what if a person or company knew it was happening but turned the other way? What if you're walking down the street and you see two men attacking a woman? You cannot be right if you just pass by without doing anything about it. Biblically, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And perhaps we don't understand that well enough. Just think about it. Here are a couple of considerations that may help us understand these difficult words right here. First of all, this is a gut level heart reaction to God and evil. This is not prescribing a course of action for us to follow. This is just a prayer that we're listening in. And, and David just pours that out. Uh, it's an honest prayer. It's not an endorsement by God of unloving action. 
David doesn't go out in this moment and exact revenge on his enemies. He's expressing his reaction to God in prayer. And that's a great place to put our frustration. It's a great way to deal with it is to tell God about it. Jesus is going to come along later and say, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. So Jesus certainly doesn't endorse our taking vengeance on our enemies. Now, the subjects of this prayer are bloodthirsty people. They're, these are people, these aren't just people that, you know, have a little slightly different view than David. These, these are people that are killing people and wanting to kill people. And, you know, when he says, do I not hate them? Obviously, uh, that should be interpreted as having a zeal for God. Um, uh, maybe not spite necessarily. You know, Jesus will say something like that in the New Testament. If, if you want to follow me and you don't hate your mother and father, you, you cannot be my disciple. Well, he doesn't mean really hate them, but in comparison to it. So. An appropriate response to an amazing God is, is to stand in awe of him. But that's not the only appropriate response. But it's, it's also to pray against evil and to pray against the evil in our world and, of course, to work against evil and injustice. I mean, this psalm isn't talking about working against injustice. This is a prayer by David. People have a lot of views, uh, about different views about how to respond to what they deem to be evil in the world. Ignore it, <laughs> protest, depend on politicians. But prayer is always appropriate. And it, it should not necessarily be the only thing that believers do, but it should be the first thing that we do. There are a lot of evils in the world that we should pray and work against. I could never name them all in one sermon, nor would I try. Ultimately, I hope that you will just pray and ask God to direct you where you can make a difference. But I would like us today, in light of Psalm 139, and in light of the fact that this is the third weekend in January, I'd like us to apply this to one particular area of our culture. Psalm 139 talks about God's omniscience, His omnipresence, His creative nature. He talks about the sanctity of human life. The taking of innocent life is an evil. And we need to find ways to stop it and to provide support for women who will choose life, no doubt. We need to pray about that and also by application and extent, by extension, I should say, work for it. January 22nd, 1973 was a very sad day in the history of America. Roe v. Wade was passed, repealing all the state laws that prohibit abortion. Seven of the nine Supreme Court justices ruled, contrary to the Scripture, that all human life was not sacred, making abortion legal in all 50 states. Now compare verse 13 to that. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Since 1973, probably approximately 60 million children have been denied the right to life. Uh, it's probably averaging eight or 900,000 a year currently in America. Well, 10 years later, after Roe v. Wade, in 1983, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation establishing a National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's the third Sunday in January, which 
is today for those uh, who will hear this sermon on, on January 21st or January 17th, 2021. Uh, some will be watching this or hearing it the weekend leading up to it or perhaps even later. But the third, the third Sunday in January has been declared to be National uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Listen to this portion of Reagan's proclamation the following year when he when he marked the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, speaking of those who had been aborted, he said, these children, over tenfold the number of Americans lost in all our nation's wars, will never laugh, never sing, never experience the joy of human love, nor will they strive to heal the sick or feed the poor or make peace among nations. To diminish the value of one category of human life is to diminish us all. Modern technology and science have uncovered the remarkable development of the unborn child more than the psalmist even knew here. The hearts start beating at 22 days. The eyes begin to develop by the fourth week. At six weeks, the baby begins to hiccup and move spontaneously. Now, at the core, this is not a political issue, though it has entered the political arena. This is a moral issue. This is a biblical issue. This is a theological issue, and that's why we talk about it. We're not going to engage in partisan politics in this church, but we are going to talk about moral, biblical, theological issues as we come across them in Scripture. And here is a very, very important one. It is so timely for today. I encourage you to pray. I also encourage you to get involved in uh, various ways with the sanctity of, uh, of human life. Uh, there are many uh, pregnancy resource centers in the Charlotte area. Um, Love Life Charlotte is, is, is a group that we've prayed with and supported. And then for those who are on the other side, who've experienced uh, the tragedy of abortion, there's this website, saveone.org. It's a, it's, it's a website for a ministry designed to help those who've had an abortion in the past and who often suffer in silence and helps them deal with it now. The sacredness of human life extends from unborn babies uh, to people in nursing homes and everyone in between. <laughs> so this psalm speaks to everything that upholds life, from opposing abortion to feeding hungry people to opposing euthanasia. Well, back to the text. There's one more consideration that helps us deal with these challenging words of verses 19 to 22. Remember, we're saying this is a heart cry to God from David. Um, they lead into the prayer of verses 23 to 24. And that, of course, gives us the second way that we should respond. The first way was ask him to deal with evil in the world. Now, the second way is to ask him to deal with evil within you. That's what David does. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Even though David prayed some strong words in verses 19 to 22, he wants to make sure that he's not being offensive. He wants to make sure that his thoughts are in line with God's thoughts. So he submits them to God's testing. He's asking God to discern 
his hearts or his heart and his thoughts. And I, I love this. This is so important for us. Sometimes people seemingly get angry about everybody else's sin out there and don't think about their own. <laughs> I, yes, we should be angry about sin and injustice and wrong, and we should pray about it and act as God leads us. But we also need to look within and ask God to search us. This is what David is doing. His attack on evil changes its focus. It's not just the evil around him that needs to be taken care of. It's the evil within him. Now, in verse 1, David had already said God has searched him and known him. So why ask God to do it? And I, th- I think we enter an entirely new level with God when we cooperate fully with him, when we open up ourselves completely to him. Test me. Test me. Check me out, God. You know, we, we, we do that with all kind of things. We take our car to a mechanic. Uh, when we want to make sure what's wrong, we go to a doctor, usually when just something's wrong, but maybe sometimes for an annual physical, just to find out, just to test us, you know. And the implicit assumption is that if the doctor finds something, then we're going to uh, proceed with the, the course of action. <laughs> Our spiritual routine should be daily testing, praying a, a prayer like this. Are you willing to pull into God's garage today and say, okay, Lord, take the hood up, check it out, test me, and I'll confess and turn to you, and I want you to lead me in the way everlasting. This this psalm starts uh, with David seeing God's majesty, and then it moves to a response to evil. Seeing God's majesty shapes how we see and pray about evil. It's important to see God's majesty, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his creativeness, his creativity. But as we see his majesty, let it shape how we also see evil. How does this point to Jesus? How does this Psalm written so long before Jesus Christ ever walked on the face of the earth point to him. And I would make this one statement. The majestic God sent his son Jesus to take care of all evil. First, the evil in our hearts. There's no way to take care of human evil in our hearts by reformation, trying to do better. We are sinful. We are separated from God. And God sent his own son Jesus, the perfect son of God who had no sin to live a perfect life, to take our wrong on himself. And that's what the cross is all about. He's taking our wrong on himself and he's taking our evil away from us. And so that's how he takes care of evil. And it's, we experience that when we, when we turn from our sin to God in faith and say, here I am. (laughs) So that takes care of it at the initial level. But obviously, we live in a world where there's still evil. We still struggle personally. I mean, there's, there's you know, these theological terms, uh, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is what happened when God makes us right with him. And that's what happens at salvation. But then sanctification is a process of becoming more and more like Jesus through our life. More and more evil gets overcome progressively. And then ultimately, glorification is when in heaven we're perfect. He takes care of evil that way. But also, 
all the evil in the world around us near and far, one day it's going to be banished and heaven is going to be an absolute perfect place. That's how this points to Jesus. Ethel Waters was a famous jazz and gospel singer who sang at uh, some of the Billy Graham crusades back in the day. She sang, his eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Her autobiography revealed that she was conceived following the rape of her 13-year-old mother. And on this end of it, she would glorify God by saying, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Seeing God's majesty shapes how we see and pray about evil. And, oh, Lord God, you are majestic. You are so amazing to us. We can't even really comprehend how great you are. We thank you and praise you for your greatness. We worship you for your greatness. Lord, will you search us? Will you really search us, Lord? There's so many thoughts we have and other people have about what's right and wrong. But, Lord, we just want you to search us. And we want to follow you well for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's some discussion questions there. Uh, we hope you'll use these. We'll use these in our virtual conversation on Sunday. Uh, and on our virtual service, as well as our two in-person services, we'll pray for the, uh, those whose last name begin with G-U all the way up to M-A-N. And then next week uh, at Harvest, as part of our 40 days of prayer, we're going to have intergenerational prayer Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're just going to look to you to initiate prayer with people that are in a different generation than you are. So, for instance, on Monday, seniors or retirees, we're going to encourage you to just reach out to somebody who's in the middle of parenting or young adults. And, and on Wednesday, uh, middle age or parents reach out to young adults or teens. And then Friday, we'd love for teenagers to reach out to elementary and just get with them in person or on the phone and, and pray. And then, of course, everybody is invited to pray virtually uh, on Thursday morning at 7.30. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.